It's good to be here this morning. As you said, I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to preach every once in a while. And, and uh, you know, before we dive into that, um, I hope some of you guys were able to make it out last night for the uh, chili and cinnamon rolls. If you did, you're probably moving a little slower like me with uh, the amount of cinnamon rolls uh, that was, was eaten there. But thank you guys for those who, who cooked and baked. Uh, it was a fun, fun experience. It's actually been a, a really busy and a fun week here at North Point. We got to move in uh, another refugee on Thursday. Uh, there was a gentleman from Burma that moved in. So for you guys who helped uh, with some of that process, thank you for that. Um, and then last Sunday, if you watched the sermon, you were watching it online because we didn't have church and the amount of snow we got. Um, I would say what, what a difference a week makes, but we're still in the middle of it. Um, and then uh, as you saw what Andy mentioned there, just to bring it to light, we're, we are uh, in May going to be bringing a team to Haiti. And that team is, is forming. We're trying to get the, the last details on that figured out. But then we're also planning for a trip to Spain in November. I uh, just got to talk with Hudson this week and finalize those details. Um, and for those of you who, who are interested, it's going to be everything from groups that go down to pray to work behind the scenes with food. They're going to be on a video uh, shoot there for their newest documentary. And so if, if you have had any experience with stage stuff, sound, lights, costumes, makeup, and that type of stuff, there's a huge need for you, which is a unique kind of a mission strip because that's usually not... The slant of a mission trip is going to be in Spain, although he's a missionary in France and they're working with people uh, from Africa. So it's kind of a combination of, of about four different missionaries that are all coming together to work on this. Um, but if, if you're in the expertise field of that, we would love to have you. Um, again, that meeting is in a couple of weeks. But if you're interested in a mission trip in general, just because we need the expertise doesn't mean we don't need a lot of people behind the scenes to just finagle a lot of details. So again, make that meeting if that's something you're interested in. We'd love to have a full team uh, go out for that. But this morning, we're going to be looking again at Genesis 9. Last week, we looked at Noah, and we looked at the flood. It's a story that most of us have heard in some capacity. Um, And as we looked at that, they made it through the flood. And today, we're going to pick it up in Genesis 9, where he gets Noah and his family, Noah's wife, his three uh, kids and their wives. They get out. And if you would just kind of imagine with me, you've gone through this flood, you've gone through being in the boat together with your in-laws and your family for a long, long time. Uh, there's no Netflix, there's no Wi-Fi, it's just you taking care of the animals day after day, wondering maybe it was better to be outside than inside, and then the bird comes back, and the water reside, uh, uh, goes down, and I kind of feel like if any of you guys uh, back a couple years ago watched uh, Lost, the TV show, it would have been that similar, like, okay, it's us, and it's back to almost Garden of Eden 2.0 in the sense of it's just us in here. And they walk out, and they get to start over. I mean, it's literally the, the biggest reset button in history. They just, it's back to square one. And I also think of the, the pressure that would bring. If you're Noah, and you're kind of like, all right, the pressure's literally on me and my family to start this earth over again, to, to represent mankind. And we see the chapter before where he was represented as, as somebody who was following after God, had a good heart. And so, you know, the weight of that is on his shoulders to, to bring his family through, to, to start and, and start over again. And, and one thing that's important as we get started is to realize that uh, Genesis as a whole, there's some great stories that are through here. And there's some great imagery of who God is. There's some great imagery of, of I love reading through. I'm con- currently uh, just got done reading through it with my own kids. And there's so many stories where it just begs more questions of who is God? Who is this, this God that created the earth, that created us? 
and, and you get to see the examples of who he is. And so it's so important as we read through to not just look at these as stories, but to look back and say, okay, who does this say that God is? Who, what, what ideas, what uh, uh, illustration does it give of who this God that loves us passionately, who is he? And so as we read through today's story, I want to keep that in the forefront. So if you, if you look at Genesis 9, verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast and on the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that has lived shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So if this verse sounds familiar, it's a repeat of Genesis 128, uh, where, where God just says, okay, here's kind of here's the rules, here's, here's how you're going to start over. So he says, you know, again, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But then at the, at the end there, he gives them permission for the first time uh, to, to use animals as food. Evidently, before the flood, uh, according to this verse, it looked like everyone was vegetarian. And at this point, God says, now everything is yours to use for food. He also says there, it's interesting, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. So there's this uh, domination, there's this being in control. This isn't a out of... Uh, disrespect or abuse, but this is saying now there's going to be almost this divide between animals won't trust you, animals are going to be fearful of you. Uh, and if you go out into the wild, if you go out anywhere, you, you sense that. You know, they see you and they usually run off. And so this, we, we see the ground rules, and it's starting over to where God has said, you know, I want you to, to multiply the earth, I want you to start over, and I also want you to be able to use the food, uh, the animals as food. But then he goes on further and says in verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeline, I will require reckoning. For every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. So God has a ton of repetition here. But essentially, it's the rules for the game, the rules for starting over. If it was just you and your family and God had wiped everything out, and you, he kind of begged to, to say, okay, well, it didn't work before, so now what are we going to do? And God says, okay, a couple of things. Be fruitful and multiply. Use animals for food if you need to. Also, if you kill, if you murder, there will be a reckoning of, of your life. And he says that multiple times here. And so he, he introduces essentially what a lot of people will say. This is kind of the, um, the looking at if, if you murder, you need to be put to death for it. And I think in our culture today, um, this one has been debated. This one's been talked about. There could be a whole sermon about this. But what I think it needs to, to be addressed is to realize that what God is saying here is there is a respect for life that needs to be respected. There's a respect for what God has created. And here he's saying if you take a life, you need to owe it with a life. I think in today's world, though, what's, what's hard is a good lawyer can just about make any story look any direction. So I think it also begs that before we put someone to death, you need to look at the situation very hard. I think it also means that if you put someone to death, and it's, it's true, what Scripture is saying here is that is a serious matter. So wherever you fall on that issue, I think you, when you come back to Scripture, it's not a matter of opinion. It's looking at what God says in verse 6 is kind of the crux to it. All this isn't just because God's a God of anger or God's just a God of justice, but God says man is made in the image of God. Man is so different than every animal. You know, he says, go ahead and use animal for food. 
But he says, man, if you kill man, there needs to be a reckoning for that. Because we're made in the image of, of God. And, and this goes a lot further because think about what that means. Every boy, every girl, every teenager, every adult, every mother, every father, every grandparent, all made in the image of God. Whether you like your neighbor, whether you like your coworker, whether you like the person that sits in the desk across from you, God made them. And they're made in the image of God. This is so important for us as even one of our core values. Our second core value says people matter to God. Therefore, we will reach out and care for everyone. Every person that walks through this door, every person from our neighborhood, every person from the community, we want to treat them with the honor and respect that God requires, that God says, I made that person. Now, sin has made a few of us have a few more rough edges than others. Sin has made it that we don't get along very well. I have kids that are between 11 and 4, and it's somewhere between a three-ring circus and a cage match on most days. Sin has entered their life, and they don't get along often. But I love them to death in the worst of times. There's coworkers and there's people that we volunteer with, there's agencies we work with that are utterly frustrating sometimes. And at the end of the day, I have to realize they were made in the image of God. I can't judge them for, for the sin that's annoying me or the sin that I don't get along with. But I have to look at they are created in the image of God. And so as we move forward, that's one of the hallmarks here of this verse that God is saying, don't forget that principle. Every person was made in the image of God. Genesis 9, 8, we'll carry on. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offsprings after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of, of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, and that never again shall all of flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. We call this a Noahic covenant or the rainbow covenant. It's a promise to God to never flood the entire earth. And as you see in there, there's a repetition over and over and over. It's like he knows that we're forgetful people. And he says that all the time in scripture, don't forget. And he says it here three or four times. This is a covenant between me and all of creation that I will never again flood the entire earth. Can you imagine if you're Noah, the next time a rain cloud comes over and it's like, where's the boat? We got to get started again. It's going to rain. Or maybe like we have here where it's like, will the snow ever stop? They're saying there's a moment where the rain started. And I'm sure there's that cringe if they were any bit of an Eeyore in any of them. They're like, I knew it was going to happen again. You sinned one too many times. Now the flood's coming again. And then they see the rainbow. And I think what's interesting is it's the same rainbow we see today. There's many uh, symbols that go through all of time. Like when we do communion today, there's a symbol and there's a there's a, a thing where we continue to pass it down. But that's what 
God's covenant to us is the rainbow. When we see that rainbow, we say, okay, it's a promise. And it might just be the promise of God never flooding the earth, but what I think is interesting is that's another sign where we get to see it's a 2,000-plus-year-old covenant where God says, I'm not going to flood the earth. But what it speaks to is God's grace and mercy. Because if we were based on merit, we should have the earth flooded frequently. It should be flooding now. It should be flooding 100 years ago. But God says, I will never take my anger out, my wrath out, and flood the entire earth. It doesn't mean he doesn't judge it. It doesn't mean he won't judge it. But it was the first kind of creep in the door here of God saying, I'm going to show grace and mercy. And this, this promise, we see it again in Revelation 4, 3. It's not on here, but John, when you look, he sees the vision of heaven. And when he looks at the throne of God, he sees the rainbow encircling the throne in verse, uh, Revelation 4, 3. And again, that symbolizes, this is the throne of judgment, but it symbolizes the grace and the mercy that's extended at the same time. And so I think it's, it's amazing to see something in Genesis that we see in Revelation, and it's for all of time for God to say, when you see that bow, and, and that word would have been the bow and an arrow, so if you think of a bow and you, you hang it down or you hang it up, and God's saying, I'm going to extend grace and mercy. So this covenant, when you see it, it's beautiful. I think it's interesting that when, when people see a rainbow or when you see like the double rainbow sometimes, it's like, man, Facebook lights up, Instagram lights up, people are like, did you see the rainbow? And people talk about it. And it's been there for thousands of years and we still marvel at what it looks like. And God said, that's my covenant. When you see that, just remember I'm faithful. I'm still faithful. Every time we see it, it's a sign of God's faithfulness. Also in this passage, what we'll see is that we see 15 times God says, I or my or me. God doesn't say we. God doesn't say when you. A lot of covenants is God says, I will bless you if. This one's God saying, I, this is my deal. This is my covenant. This is my promise. It has nothing to do with you. And in our world, in our sinfulness, in our mistake-ridden lives, I love this promise because there's times I can't live up to my end of the deal. I can't be good enough And God says, this has nothing to do with you. This is my extension of grace and mercy to you that you do not deserve. And so when we see this rainbow, we get to see the first glimpse of God extending grace when we don't deserve it. Mankind, we'll see shortly after this, did not deserve grace and forgiveness. And God says, I give it to you. And I want you to realize, even from the beginning of of the Old Testament, this is the grace and mercy that God's painting all the way through. So if... Genesis 9, 1 through 17, God's laying the the rules for the new creation. Then starting in 18, we're going to pick it up with Noah and his sons. So so picture with me, this is God kind of saying, okay, the reset button has been pushed. And then now we take it back to the intimate story of of Noah and what's going on. So it's kind of like we get the big picture, God speaking from the clouds, here's your rules. And then as it always comes back to, we see the story. We see the story of of, uh, Noah and his sons, his sons who were married and and, and have kids at this point. And so Genesis nine eighteen, The sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. 
A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be, the, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tent of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years and all his days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So we have a very interesting plot twist here. You would think they hit the reset button, life was rosy from there on out. And it's like, boom, the next story, man screws up again. Noah, this patriarch that was going to be the savior of the world in the sense of he was a godly man, he was a man that was living as a beacon, a light of hope in a depraved world, so God puts him on the ark, he gets out, and then he screws up. I'm sure you guys have had that day like Noah, where you're living on cloud nine, and then you screw up. And it's like, man, my family's watching, my kids are watching, I can't believe I did this. I mean, if you guys can all, can all visualize that, you're, you're there, but at the same time, we look at Noah, and we're like, come on, man. Like, it was all on you. God gave you the biggest reset button, and then you screwed up. And then on top of it, then we see his, his youngest son, and, and there's some commentation as far as he's listed first, but he's called the youngest. But then at the same time, we also see that, that um, Noah says there will be a curse on Canaan, which would have been his son. Um, and so, so there's a, the, a little bit following the, the names there. But what we see in that time, just to give context to this, is to see your father naked, naked would have completely dishonored your father. It would have been the most humiliating thing for the father in that culture with the culture of, of kind of being a patriarch and, the, and being uh, the, not pride, but just the um, leading your family. There would have been so much shame brought upon Noah. So at this point, your youngest son has seen you naked. The shame is there. Your respect level drops dramatically in the community. Just this, this, the cultural tie there is really important to understand that this isn't just kind of like, oops, um, you know, my bad, but this is a huge uh, degrade to his father, but at the same time, what we see is he saw it, and then it's as if any middle school boy goes and makes fun of it, sees it, and it says, guys, come look at what I saw, and he's making fun of it, and so we see it from a, a small moment of shame to then a mockery, and his sons, though, as they see it, they say, boy, we're not even going to look, we're going to walk backwards, and then, man, dad screwed up, but let's, let's cover him up, and when he sobers up, he'll, he'll come back to and realize and so we see two things there where we see the, the uh, disrespect of Ham, but we see the decency of Shem and Japheth being able to love their father in the midst of their mistake. And so again, we, we see this tension here of, of somebody that, that's getting humiliated, but at the same time his son's being able to honor him in the midst of what's going on. And we look at that and we're like, come on, really? It, it reminds me of when I was probably eight, nine years old, my house... I have a younger brother and an older brother, but my younger brother and I were finishing up breakfast, and uh, as my, my mom was going to go get ready for the day, she left kind of everything on the table, and it's one of those where the parents say, okay, just finish up breakfast, and then uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes, so yeah, I'm getting stuff ready, and all of a sudden I look across, and I'm finishing up my grape juice, and I'm good to go, and my little brother taking a huge lemonade pitcher of grape juice, and he walks over to his Tonka trunk truck, and he starts pouring it in the back. He's like, look, it's carrying all the grape juice, and it's splashing everywhere. And it's kind of not a white carpet, but it's close. So you get this grape juice just soaking in the carpet, and he's splashing all over it, pouring it in, happy as could be. And I'm sure I'm just kind of like, you're in trouble. 
And of course, mom comes and just loses it. And that was a day we never had grape juice in the house ever again. And to this day, there's been times where we're like, hey, mom, can we bring the grape juice over? And she's like, no, no, no grape juice. But I have to think if God's watching this, and he was, is like, come on, Noah. Come on, Ham. We, we talked about this. I literally flooded the earth because of my anger of this. But God gives him the space and the grace. He didn't flood the earth again. If I was the writer of the story, I would have omitted the story because this shows all the ugliness of Christianity at the same time. People living in the tension of grace and forgiveness. But God didn't give up on them. God had let the consequences, as we see here, the curse that went to Canaan. Um, It's sad if you look. uh, Canaan ends up being the family line that lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see Ham living this out in front of his kids and his kids taking that and living it out in the next generation. They're in Sodom and Gomorrah. So we see this family line where God says, you know, I'm not going to wipe you out, but I'll let you see the consequences of sin. I'll let you see the consequences of your choices. But then we also see that uh, the family line from Shem ends up being Abraham. And Abraham ends up being King David. And King David ends up being Jesus. And so we see the two choices in the direction that went. And for me, it's, it's amazing to see the choices that people lead and where that leads them to. And how God blesses one unless the consequences of sin lead out in the other one. My son, who's 11, he loves treats. He loves sweets. And there's a certain point where we'd tell him, you know, Dre, when, when, when you eat, you can have one brownie. You know, you got to have your pizza. You got to eat something. But you can only have one of these. But then there was a day we took him to Golden Corral. <laughs> and I was like, you can eat anything you want. Just, just enjoy it. And he's like, really? And I was like, but when you get that tummy ache, don't come crying to me. <laughs> like, you're 10. You can figure this out on your own. At some point, you've got to kind of branch out there. I'm not going to structure everything. And he's going to town, going to town. I swear we've been there probably two hours, probably 20 minutes, but it felt like two hours. <laughs> and he has just gorded himself. And then also he's like, oh, I don't feel so good, Dad. Like, just remember this. Next time I tell you, you can only have one brownie. This is what it feels like when you have three, four, five, or ten. And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't think I'll do that again. And I have to think that moment there is kind of like a relationship with God. There's times where he puts structure. There's times where I think providence comes in and he doesn't let us screw up. But there's other times where he says, boy, I've told you. It's in Scripture. I've told you. Your friends have warned you. You've seen it. The Holy Spirit's convicted you. But if that's the direction you want to go, and we see here where it gets laid out, in these directions, and we see the consequences of this. And I think for us, it, it begs the question of saying, just like Noah, I think all of us are in this tension of life where God's extended grace and forgiveness to us. God's let us be forgiven, but he's also let us deal with the consequences of sin. And so as we read this passage, I think there's a couple of things we can pull away from this. Noah's Drunkenness reminds us that on our best days, we can be like Noah's being saved in the ark and being the patriarch of the world. And our worst days, we can be passed out drunk in the tent. But God still uses us despite our best times and despite our worst times. So I don't know which end of the spectrum you're on. If you're feeling like you're on cloud nine and God's lucky to have you, or if you're passed out drunk in the tent and you're wondering why God would love you. 
This story speaks to both to say, in the midst of it, God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. But it also speaks to the severity of realizing that in the sin, there's people that are watching you. And I have to think if Ham would have known that his sons were, were going to be living that down and end up in Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe the sobering reality would have forced them to change direction. You know, there's an old country song Rodney Atkins sings, Watching You. He says a line in there, so, so I say, son, where, where'd you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. And he goes on to, to describe many different lines of, dad, I've been watching you. And I think in the story we get to see the sons watched their dads and they lived it out. At the same time, if God's our father, we get this perfect example of who God is. And God extends grace and forgiveness to us. He lets us live it out. But he's also a God that brings us back and says, well, you're, you're going to have to work through that one because there's a consequence to what you did. But at the same time, I've, I love you and I forgive you. We go back to the, what Noah did. And we see there's a legacy that his, his kids lived out. And I want to challenge you guys today as, as, as we bring this to a close to think about this picture that gets painted for one of the first times about Noah and the picture of who God is and the grace and forgiveness that he extends to us in your life, are you passing on that baton in a way that is a life of no regret? Are you realizing that there's roommates beside you that are watching you, your kids that are watching you, neighbors that are watching you, and they want to see the greatest light possible. They want to see who Christ is. And just like that song where he says, I've been watching you. I've been picking up. Where'd you learn those words? I've been watching you. Where'd you learn how to pray? I've been watching you. And every one of us is being watched by somebody. And we get that chance to live it out. Now, thankfully, we have a a God who loves us and forgives us. We have a God of second chances. You know, we don't get to know what happened with Noah. But just because of the amount of years, 300 plus more years, I'm sure there was a lot more life to him. I'm sure there was a lot more ups and downs. And his sons got to learn quite a bit. But I would challenge you in your life as you look at this. Which path are you heading down? Are you more like Shem and Japheth? Are you more like Ham? Where you're just kind of living in the moment. Who cares? We'll make fun of this. We'll do this. Because there's people watching. But the beauty of this is that God has not given up on you. God has not said it's over. It's done. We get a God that, as you see it all the way through Genesis and you see it all the way up through the New Testament, that continues to say, boy, there's, there's a plan for you. I'm not done. And I love that in the story. Even so often the Old Testament gets painted as this God who's a fire and brimstone, who just judges and, and hates the sin and hates what's you know, going on. It's just gloom. And then it's like the New Testament finally is like, oh, it's a relational God. But here we see there's a, the, the glimmers of a relational God who loves and extends grace and forgiveness. So as we continue to move through Genesis, I want you to continue to point back to this chapter and realize there's a grace and forgiveness that's extended here. That we live in that moment. But we also have the tension of living out that sin. And so there's a stark reminder to make the most of the days that we have, the most of the moments that we have. I'm going to pray here, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. Father, I thank you for walking us through this passage. And Lord, as, as we see the story of Noah and we see the story of his sons and as we even look 
further on and we see the family lineage, the line that's, that's passed on, Lord, let us not read this and just live another day, but we live it with purpose and realizing that we're living on a legacy, we're passing on the, this baton, and that we're blessed to have a loving Father who loves us. But Lord, let us not take advantage of that. Let us not live without realizing that sin is real and sin has consequences. But Lord, thank you for, again, the covenant to show that you love us and that you will uh, extend us grace and forgiveness. Thank you again for this morning, your name. Amen.